On your journey through life, you are the hero. There are times, however, when it is beneficial to have an advisor to guide you along your path. Welcome to the Smart Money Simplified Podcast with Brent Mikosh, Certified Financial Planner, Certified Investment Management Analyst, and Co-Founder of MP Advisors, LLC. In this podcast, we provide you with financial clarity so that you have the tools to live your best life. Listen in as Brent guides you through creative solutions to various financial problems that business professionals, young adults, and retirees commonly face to make their money work. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Smart Money Simplified with Brent Mikosh. Today, Brent has a guest in studio, and that is Tom Van Arsdale. Tom is a former American professional basketball player. He played at Indiana University before playing in the NBA for 12 years. One of the things Brent and Tom will be discussing today is Tom's book, Journeyman, celebrating an unlucky, unpredictable, and undeniably successful NBA career. Brent, I am so excited. How did you get Tom to come in? You know, I've, I've the good fortune of meeting Tom a couple of years ago, and uh, friendship's grown through that, and had even equally good fortune to read the book earlier this year, and I just thought it was a fantastic a real fantastic journey that he's taken through both writing this and what he shared on these pages. And I wanted to share it with the listeners. Well, that is fantastic. You had mentioned in some notes to me that he is an amazing guy. One of the nicest guys you've ever met before we started recording. I was asking him about former players uh, that he may have met that I've happened to meet and uh, were heavily involved in charity. And of course he knew Bob Boozer and, and a shout out to Bob's family. Tom, I'm so glad that you're on and I'm, I'm so glad that we had that discussion beforehand because it really shows me your heart. Well, I, I remember Bob very well, and he was he was extremely well thought of in the NBA. Well, it sounds like you're well thought of in the NBA as well, so I'm looking forward to today's conversation. It's going to be good, and I'm looking very forward to it as well. Tom, I want to dive right into it. So why the book? Why'd you write the book? Well, I kind of got started thinking about it uh, years ago. Uh, I'm almost 79 now, and uh, my mother, Hilda, uh, was quite a gal, and when Dick and I were playing uh, in the NBA, we were didn't see her very often because we were traveling so much. So it was a habit that every Monday, Dick would call mom and I would call mom and we would talk to her. And uh, so I started a few years ago putting some writings together about my mother and what her life was like as a little girl growing up in Banco, Indiana on a farm. And she she was just my idol. And um, so I put, I started doing a, a memoir of my mother. I never published it, but uh, I, I would sit down and gradually write about her and what her life was like. And I called the memoir Coffee with Mom. Hmm. And I ran copies of it and I gave one to each, to each of my children and uh, my brother's children and him. So I spread it around the family. And so I've always kind of liked keeping records, yeah. um, what's going on. I'm just, it's kind of an addiction of mine. And so I thought, you know, I'd, I'd been out of basketball for a long time and I really wasn't satisfied with my overall life in the game. And I wanted to write about it because I needed to, I needed to, um, have somebody listen to me and I needed to have somebody like a therapist just listen so I could vent. And, and, and so about oh, probably about five years ago, I started writing just uh, whenever I felt like it. And I might be in bed at night and I would think of a subject about 
my life and my career and my basketball career, and I'd make a little note, well, I want to write a chapter about that. And then I would, during that during that period, I would start writing and just in longhand, not on the computer. And then I would a- actually later put it on the computer. And I'd write chapter after chapter after chapter. And I worked on it for about two years. And... Uh, I would print out each chapter after I put it on the computer and then I would let my wife read those chapters. And I said, you know, I had written, I had written probably 20 chapters and I said to my wife, Kathy, I said, you know, I don't think I can finish this. I just, it's just, it's hard. It's really hard to do. And it's amazing how many things I thought about when I wrote that, Oh, I never, I never thought about that before. But five, she said, Tom, she said to me, you've got to finish it. She said, I really like this. Well, my wife is a perfectionist, and if she told me to finish it, I thought, I better finish it. So uh, I had probably 20 chapters written, something like that, and then I I needed help working on the flow of the book and putting it all together, and I had a, a friend of mine's son, his name is Tyler Daswick, who went to journalism school at Northwestern, and he... I would I would send him my my writings and my chapters and he would help me make them sound better. So I worked on it a long time, but I it was it was something very cathartic for me. You know, you mentioned that you started this book because you were unsatisfied with your time in the game. And having read the book and having known you before I read the book, that actually shocks me because in the book at the end you say the book started because you were unsatisfied with the game. To me, as reading it until I came to that point, it was a story about gratitude gratitude for all these experiences you had, the guys that you played with, the things you were able to do in different ways, in some ways were challenging for your family. I was surprised to hear, to read at the end that you were unsatisfied with your time there. So how did writing this book, did it, did it change your perspective? Do you still feel that, do you still feel unsatisfied or, or did this help you move beyond that? Well, it helped me, Brent. It helped me quite a bit because after I wrote it, I realized the, the, the real satisfaction I got out of playing were all the relationships that I had made through the years with players, coaches, fans. F- and I was doing something that I absolutely had to do. I, yeah. I, I loved the game. In fact, when I got out of college, I, went, I was separated from my brother Dick for the first time in my life. And I was, I was, emo- I was depressed because I'd never been away from Dick before. So I left training camp in Detroit and went went down and enrolled in law school at Indiana University because I was so unhappy. And I didn't go to one class because I was still unhappy. So I went back to Detroit and I continued my career. And I thank God to this day that I did because if I had never pursued my dream of making it into the pros, I would have been a miserable person. Hmm. Now, having said that, I played 12 years in the NBA and I – Never won a championship. I played on some of the worst teams in the NBA. I would join the Philadelphia 76ers when their record was four wins and 47 losses. Uh, there was no free agency. We couldn't go where we wanted to go. And I was never on a good team. And God knows I wasn't Michael Jordan or Oscar Robertson. I couldn't carry a team. I needed other players with me. And I never got traded to a good team. So I went through my whole life – Dick and I played in the state championship at Indiana for the high school championship. 700 teams in Indiana played for that one championship, and we were in the final game, and we lost. 
in overtime. I won't I won't expand on what I think about the game, but and then I go to Indiana University. I play freshman couldn't play, but I played there three years. And we we never played in the NCAA tournament because we never won the Big Ten. And you have to win the Big Ten. You had to win the Big Ten back then to be be in the NCAA tournament. And then I go to the pros. Same thing. I go twelve years never in a playoff game. I'm still the leading scorer of all the players in the NBA who've never been to a playoff game, never been to the playoffs. That's my one claim to fame, if you can believe it. Three-time All-Star, though, two-time. Let's not diminish that. Yeah, I'm very appreciative. So I go through all this scenario, Brent, and then I I I think about my friends. I think about, you know, I think about all those great Boston Celtics teams and how lucky they had talent. And I think about, I played against Will Chamberlain, and, and Jerry West and 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 uh, Elgin Bay, Rick. I played against all the great players. They got championships. I never got a. Ch- so it it really gnawed on me. Mm. Uh, my wife said I wasn't the same person after I quit playing, and so I was, I was kind of angry. I was mm. really angry, and and I was also up, upset that how could this happen to me? How could I go through those three levels of play? Was I a bad player? I mean, couldn't Dick and I carry us to the state championship? I mean, I it it really got to me. So this book really helped me get through that. Hmm. Well, it was it was amazing to read it because again, you didn't reveal that until the very end. Because to me, almost the the story, not to sound cliche or anything, but it's really a it's a love letter toward towards the game, the guys that you worked with, towards your family in a ton of different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, through the process of writing this. What was your biggest takeaway aside from aside from maybe releasing some of that frustration? Did it did it get you over that frustration finally? I will say this. I think it's like not completely. Yeah. But I I would say that it got me seventy five percent better. Um I still think how upset I am about what happened and uh, I'm not blaming anybody for it. It's just that's the way that's the way God said it should be for me. And so I accept it. So I'm over it enough to where it doesn't bother me anymore. But I think what it did too, it, 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 these relationships I had, you know, for example, with Oscar Robertson, Oscar knows how much I care about him. I don't think he realizes how much he impacted my life and my brother's life. Um, I played with a lot of people who affected me and, you know, most of the guys were just great guys. So those, and to do to this day, I have a Rolodex of almost everybody I played against and played, and I I I make a habit of calling them now. I've got friends all over the country. I can call any one of them. I could call up Jerry West and say Jerry. He'd say, "Hey Tom, how you doing?" Or I Oscar, or I called Sam Jones about five years ago who played for the Celtics. Uh, Steve Mix is a good friend of mine. He played for the 76ers, and I call these guys all the time. John McLaughlin, who played on the Milwaukee Bucks championship team, is like a brother. So all these relationships to me as I get older are so important. And I think I'm I, – I talk to my other buddies in the NBA. They don't, they don't do a lot of that. And since my brother Dick had his stroke 15 years ago, he's not able to do that. But he says, Tom, you're doing such a great job of staying in touch with all these players. Well, that's what's valuable to me. Yeah. You mentioned Oscar Robinson several times in the book and the impact he had on you. What was it about him as not just a player, but as a person that left such a mark? Well, I remember the first time I met Oscar Robertson 
it was a, it was in the um, early fifties, middle fifties, and he was running in a track meet down at Bloomington, Indiana, for Christmas Addicts, which was an all black school in Indianapolis, and he was uh, in between events, and I was my dad was a high school track coach, so we were down there with dad's track team to per, to participate in in this uh, overall track meet. And I saw Oscar there, and he had his green addicts jacket on with a yellow A on it for addicts, and he was over at the hot dog stand getting a hot dog. And I I said, oh, my gosh, I've got to get Oscar's autograph, and I'd never (laughs) met him in my life. So I went over, Dick and I both went over and said, Oscar, you know, I just asked him if I could have his autograph, and he was eating a hot dog, and he mustard and relish, and he he took the wrapper and wrapped it around his hot dog and stuck it in the pocket of his letter jacket and took it signed his autograph and I said thank you very much and he was very nice to this day I still have that autograph but you really That's yeah amazing. I still do yeah. but he was the Christmas addicts basketball team being the all-black high school team in Indianapolis was a story in, into itself they were just they they handled themselves so well and they were so good and then over the years I finally caught up and I got traded to Cincinnati and I got to start with Oscar in the backcourt and I roomed with him some so I got to know him quite well because we're both from Indianapolis, the Indianapolis area. And he's just been a special person. He's quiet. He's kind of, he's very thoughtful. He, he led, he really was responsible for, for leading the entire NBA players organization, the, the retired players association into getting our, the pension plan that we have. And also, uh, going through with the antitrust against the NBA. Oscar was our lead. It wasn't Wilt Chamberlain. It wasn't Bill Russell. It wasn't West. It wasn't any of those great players. It was Oscar Robertson. Hmm. He had he had leadership qualities, and uh, he helped everybody else with it. See, he yeah. he helped me a lot. Well, it seemed like you know again reading the book, he de- he demanded the most of the people that he played with, and that that matched with your work ethic. Yeah, and, and one of the things that that. I'm trying to reconcile still after reading the book is there's a mix here between incredible work ethic that got you where you were in the game at, at all these different levels. And you touched on a little bit earlier in the conversation, there was some self doubt behind there too. How, how did you, how did you overcome that self doubt to work as hard as you did to get to where you did? Cause that's, I think anyway, having read the book, Oscar saw that in you, he saw how hard you worked and how, how hard you hustled and that meant something to him, which is probably one of the reasons you remain great friends. Yeah. You know, that is a subject that is very, very close to my heart is self-doubt. I'm surprised you said that because I never felt I was good enough. Even when we played in this high school state championship game, I thought, oh, are we good enough? And then in, in, in Indiana, I thought, am I good enough? And then I got into the pros and I felt the same way. Am I good enough? And so I was always proving myself. But Oscar... You know, Oscar was a very driven person, and he would get on other players. I mean, he would – and if you if you couldn't shoot the ball, he wouldn't pass it to you. He knew who to pass the ball to. Oscar, Oscar in all the years I played with him, which maybe not a lot. I played with him for two years. Mm-hmm. He never yelled at me one time. He never criticized me. He was always very positive with me. And uh, I think he did realize – at, uh, what it meant to me and how much Dick and I were hustlers and we were mean, tough play. And I don't mean mean, 
we were tough players. Yeah. Very aggressive. And uh, so, but the self-doubt, Brent, I don't know why I felt that. You know, when, when I was a senior in college, uh, we put a, there was a team put together to play against the, the Russian Olympic team that came into Indianapolis to play against some college players. Well, some of the Indiana college players played on that. And I played, and Tony Hinkle, the old famous coach at Butler University, uh, Hinkle Fieldhouse it's called now, uh, he, he, we all played a certain amount of minutes. And I got into that game against the Russians. It was their really good Russian Olympic team. And I just felt like I couldn't compete. And it was, and I, I was at the end of a college career. I was an All American and all. And I just felt I couldn't compete. So I, I was, I went over when, after I was playing a little bit, I said, Coach Hinkle, you got to take me out of the game. I mean, believe it or not, I said that to him. Hmm. I said, you've got to take me out of the game because I'm not good enough to play out here. It wasn't until I got, became a professional basketball player and I started playing against the big boys that I realized I could play. Yeah. And that's when I started believing in myself, but it took a long time. And I think that's, I, 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 you know, I, I can, I can, I can attest to that in my own life in terms of, um, there's always been that question. Are you good enough? I know that in my early days, uh, in New York, there was a, a, a woman that was a, a little bit ahead of me and she was so confident and she was just once, and there was not many women on the floor of the New York stock exchange before I got into this end of the business where I worked. And I would look at her with such awe and amazement because I never saw somebody more confident than she was. Um, and, you know, she looked at me once and she said, you got to fake it until you make it. Huh. And that really resonated. And years later, she actually wrote a book, which she never had published. I wish she did. But I didn't realize at that time in her life, she was going through some really awful stuff. And it was mm -hmm. all it, it, her sense of self-doubt could have at that point been greater than almost anybody else's that I've that I've met, you know, and, and uh, a lot of stuff that she had to go through at that period of time. So I, th I think that's a universal condition. I think what makes what makes your story different is. You heard that voice, but you didn't. Look, you you might have given it a little bit of time, but you didn't follow that. And yeah. and every everybody I've talked to has been successful. Every single one has self doubt, but the question is, what do they do with it? Do they say, "Forget this, I'm going to still still try and start try to do my best," and that's where the value is, or do they listen to it? And, mm -hmm. and you don't listen to it in this book. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. which is great. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing one thing I found it one thing about writing this book which I think is important to anybody listening. If they, all of my friends say, Oh, I wish I had known what my grandfather was like. And did it, you know, we've heard that all over. And, uh, I hear that today. And I say to people, why don't you start writing down some things and you don't have to do a book. You can just do a memoir or whatever. But I found that my children now say to me, dad, we're so happy you wrote this because we didn't know these things about you. Right. My son and my sons, cause my father, had a tremendous uh, depression problem. He he was institutionalized a few times in shock treatments and all, and I had to go see that. And I had depression when I played, may, not in college or in high school, but I had depression in the pros. And I had to fight that. But my kids hear that and they say, Dad, we didn't know that. And they hear other things about me that they didn't know. So it's I, I and every one of my kids read this book and said, "Dad, we loved your book. We just loved it." And uh, so that that's really I would encourage anybody who's thinking about it, have fun and write it and let your let who you are be known. 
Yeah. Was that hard to do that though? Because as people we've all, again, I know that I'm guilty of it. We all have got, we got the facade that we put on for the world. And when you start revealing deep things about yourself, it's, I, I think there's some strength in that vulnerability, but it's still tough to do it. Was it hard for you to publish this? No, it wasn't hard for me at all. The truth will set you free. And I've had some difficult times in my life where I had to confess some of the things I did and I didn't want to do it. But after I did it, those who love me still love me. And it even bonded us closer because the worst place we as Americans can be is placing somebody on a pedestal. I guess some people want to be on a pedestal. I never wanted to be on a pedestal. I don't want anybody to put me on a pedestal. I think Charlie Charles Barkley's talked about that. Don't be, don't put me on a pedestal. I'm human. Being on a pedestal is a very un, uneasy place to be, and I I got hit the hard way on it. And so, se- telling the truth, as tough as it is, sets you free. Mm-hmm. When now in throughout the book, obviously, you have a twin brother Dick, who also. Uh, was in the NBA for 12 years, and you guys shared your last season together with the Suns. When he read this book, was there anything new to Dick about things that, that you wrote in the book? Was there anything he didn't know? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Silly question no, on my part. No. What got me about Dick was, you know, he had this stroke 15 years ago, and I kind of have to – I got to care for him now, which is fine. He's not physically bad, but his his cognitive skills are difficult. But – well, got me about it. Nothing in the book that I wrote, Dick would have wrote, would have written exactly the same thing I wrote. Except he didn't have he he had some depression, but he never had doubts about his game. Yeah, he went to the New York Knickerbockers in 1965 to play on the Knicks team, and he got up there. He started right away, and he played, and and he had one of the toughest coaches in the world, and Harry Gallatin, who was a tough tough coach but that so dick dick and i are different in that regard but when dick read the book he said tom he said you know that is really a great book yeah and for him to say that and then my wife said that it just kind of made made me feel wonderful yeah 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 well i mean it and it is it is absolutely a wonderful book tell me a little bit about your time with the, with the retired players association with Oscar, how, how what, well, what was that like, and and what um what should some of the younger players maybe know about life after basketball? Well, you know, I was in the era nineteen sixty five to nineteen seventy seven, and then when I retired, I I got on the uh, board of the Retired Players Association, and uh, at that time there was no free agency, the pension was peanuts. And Oscar was the president of our Players Association. And we had a – Dave Bing was the vice president. Dave's the former mayor of, of Detroit. Bob Pettit, who was one of the Hall of Fame old-timers from St. Louis. Dave Cowens, that played for the Celtics. Freddie Brown from the, from uh, Seattle. Archie Clark. Um, trying to think who else was on that. Uh, anyway, we had a great board. But we're, we're all in that era where – the pension needed to have work and antitrust. We were right in the middle of an antitrust suit. Right. The leader was Oscar was t- a tough negotiator and he's not a real good communicator. I mean, he's not one that the words just flow out of his mouth eloquently, eloquently. He has to think about it, but he's, he's a great leader. 
And he and, and Bob Cousy was a big help also. Bob Cousy was a famous Boston Celtics player and coach. But Oscar's really the one that kind of sealed the uh, antitrust thing for us. And for, so these guys that are playing today, they have free agency. Yeah. And boy, that's like, it's like you talk about being, talking about freedom and what freedom means to people. I mean, we were, we were confined to a team before that. And then the pension has evolved. So it's a pretty nice pension now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Chris Paul had a lot to do with that, with the, with the Active Players Association. But it was through the persistence in the history of Oscar Robertson that the game is where it is today as far as the players are concerned. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Oscar gets the respect he needs or he deserves, I should say. Because he, boy, he 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 didn't need to fight for us. I mean, he, but he did. Yeah, yeah. Was that universally recognized across the players of your era that he was he was the guy? There's obviously a reason he was representing them. Yes, I think everybody respected Oscar. Dave Bink, for example, took over for Oscar after Oscar retired from the Players Association, and Dave Bing is just a class act. He mm-hmm. a great leader, and he kind of wrote. I don't. I don't mean this. He he was a big part of it too, but Oscar was the spearhead. Oscar was the point of the spear that just took care of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me ask you this: so, since your your MBA career, you've obviously had a number of different business ventures. One which you discuss the steak shop <laughs> in, in the book. <laughs> oh yeah. But what did what did your MBA career teach you about business? And do you think that that helped you later on as you began to engage in other things after basketball? I don't think it helped me at all. <laughs> As you read, Brent, uh, we had a little fiasco with a Jerry Lucas beef and shakes yep. in there. And uh, when when Dick and I retired from basketball in 1977, we had no idea what we were going to do. Yeah. We had no business acumen at all. I remember being on an airplane trip one time with Terry Dishinger, who was from Purdue and very bright guy. And Tom said to me one day, he said, Tom, you know, you can invest in real estate and you can, you can make money and still show that you lost money. I <laughs> said, go, yeah. I said, Terry, how does that make? So anyway, and I majored in economics at Indiana university, but I didn't know anything about business. So Dick and I became real estate investors, brokers, just because we liked buying land. Yeah. And so we said, well, let's do this. And we did. And there again, I had self so much self-doubt. And we had a pretty good career in the real estate business. But it's not like some of the guys. We could have done a lot better. But, you know, now that we're in the art, now that we're doing our arts, yep. we're in hog heaven. Yeah. We have no stress. <laughs> There's no stress. Well, in, t- in terms of the real estate, I do think in, in your book also, there's another reoccurring theme that whether you see it this way or not, sometimes there is right place, right time. For sure. And also in terms of real estate for Phoenix, you know, 19, oh. late 70s oh. to now, I mean, it's definitely right place, right time for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's very cyclical. And yeah. I I don't know. I, I had a real hard time asking investors to invest in something that I was doing. Yeah. I can invest my own money. And if I lose it, fine. I mean, I'll live with it. But if I invest somebody else's money, and you're in that business brand. You've got to have an attitude that you know it doesn't always work out. And uh, I'd lay a bit. I would lay awake at night, just think, "Oh my gosh, if this doesn't make money for my investors, it's just going to kill me." So that that's not a good way to be. 
That is, that's definitely hard. I will say just yeah. on a personal level, when even something like the pandemic came in yeah. 2020, March of 2020, I don't think I slept. Yeah, I'll be. Um, yeah. Because you're just, you know, you're, you're looking at what's happening in the world and you're thinking of the people behind those, behind those dollars for sure. You know, yeah. No, no question about it. Yeah. So yeah. tell me about your new career as an artist. Well, this is, this is probably <laughs> one of the best things Dick and I ever did. We'd always kind of liked art for some reason and we'd never taken any lessons we used to draw cartoons when we were kids but when we finally retired from business about oh a few years ago uh, there was a little art studio in downtown old scottsdale that opened up and dick and i said let's rent that thing and let's start doing some art yeah and we'd already started on the side kind of he does pen pencil and ink drawings and i do oils and so we rented this art studio about four or five years ago and it's evolved to where we do quite a bit of, we have quite a quite a selection. I, we call it like somebody called it naive art. It's 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 not fine art. It's naive art, and so we go down to the art studio every day, and our wives love it because we get out of the house, and we love it because, you know, it's something to do, and it's a it's a hobby really. Not that we don't like to you know be businessmen and make some money, but. We really enjoy what we do, and uh, it's just we invite anybody to come down to Van Arsdale Art Studio and take a look at what we've got, and we get a lot of people stopping in that want to talk about sports. Of course, you know? so we'll we'll get somebody from New New York people, or everybody in New York knows us because Dick played for the Knicks, and then of course we get a lot of Indiana people stopping by. So, yeah. but we do we love we love what we do now. Yeah, yeah, it's it's cool. It's a fun place to stop by. So I know you still occasionally will go see a game. What is your what's your take on the state of professional basketball these days? Well, Brent, it's a completely different game yeah. than when I played. It's it's basically a three point game, and I guess you know I think it can be exciting. There's some players I really love to watch. I love to watch Steph Curry. Yeah, play uh, our Phoenix Suns team this year is darn good. They've got some players that I like, but I really. I went to see the Suns play San Antonio last night with my brother. And at my age, I just can't take all the racket, <laughs> the music that's played. I don't know. I'd rather stay home now and watch it. But it's an exciting game. Yeah. Um, sports, sports has become such a big business. It's unreal what these guys are making today. Oh, it's absolutely incredible. And I, and I don't know the answer to this. I don't even have an opinion on this. But – when you were playing, the players really didn't have a lot of power. And obviously, you talk about what you did in the Retired Players Association with Oscar. Now, from the outside looking in, and not knowing the, not knowing how the, the business of the game, it almost seems like the players have outsized power. And some of the some of the influence that maybe some of the individual players have is too big, not just on the sport of basketball, but society and culture in general. Am I wrong with that? I don't think you're wrong. I think. Uh Athletes have been propelled to the to another rung yeah. when it comes to influencing people. Uh, LeBron James is a good example. And as a matter of fact, I don't dislike LeBron. He's a great player, but sometimes I think he says things he shouldn't say. In fact, I wrote a little article for Heritage for the Daily Signal for the Heritage Foundation saying I thought he made a mistake on something that he said you know, a while back. I just think that they have a right to do that. They have a right to say what they want to say. 
people have a right to listen to them and say I don't don't agree with them. So right. it's just it it's it's unbelievable how money talks in mm-hmm. any aspect of the world. And I'm I'm not begrudging people have. I, I I am a capitalist, and I believe in capitalism, and I believe in people who risk and take a chance on business, which when I played, there was a chance the NBA was even going to go bankrupt. That's true. Yeah. That was the last half of the 60s. We didn't know if it was going to exist. Well, these owners deserve to make money. Yep. They took risks, and now players have gotten free agency. Some of them are making $40 million a year, and when you put endorsement money with that, I mean, you could take guys like Magic Johnson, and I just love Magic. You take LeBron. You take, of course, Michael Jordan. These guys are billionaires. Yeah. We're not talking millionaires. We're talking billionaires. So, guys, what are you complaining about? Yeah. So I do think that they have a lot of influence. Uh, but I don't think one person, you look at Kyrie Irving right now, and you look at the kid Simmons in Philadelphia, they weren't going to play this year because of the COVID situation. Yeah. And Ir- Irving is still not playing. Yeah. So I think I think there's a point where balance is important. Yeah. And I think there is balance right now. Uh, and the the players have, you know, the players come and go. They come and go. The owners will always be there. But uh, I think sometimes – Players need to watch what they say. Well, as you mentioned, obviously, LeBron is very vocal, as some of the other NBA players are. Black Lives Matter is mm. a big, big, um, big voice, it seems to me, anyway, from the outside looking in the league. You touch on race in your book, mm-hmm. and I'd like to expand on that a little bit, a little bit, because you grew up in pretty, I may be wrong, but pretty white, lily rural town. In uh, Indiana, uh, you played. You mentioned uh, obviously Oscar's team, which is all black team. What was what was the state of race relations in the game at that point? Uh, it was, in general, it was it was good. We didn't. There weren't a lot of African Americans in Indiana where I grew up. Yeah. But then when Dick and I transferred to Indianapolis to a school up there, we played with. In the summer, we played with blacks all the time. Yeah. And we some. Sports writers in Indianapolis say Dick and I were instrumental in in bringing blacks and whites together at these playgrounds in Indianapolis because we, we have we had no our parents didn't teach us anything about we, they weren't racist yeah Dick and I never felt as long as we played we never had a racial issue with anybody but obviously before the, when Crispus Attucks won the state tournament in nineteen. They won it in 1955 and 1956, and those were the teams Oscar played on. Usually the championship team would get a parade down around Indianapolis Circle, which is the main part of Indianapolis. Yeah. When Christmas Addicts won, they didn't do it downtown around the circle. Hmm. They took them someplace else. Now, that was discrimination. It had to be. Yeah. So, yeah, it existed, but we – as I said when I spoke at Butler University a few years ago, if the the universe would get along like we – black and white athletes do in professional sports it would be a better world yeah i truly believe that in fact dick and i made these t-shirts with our artwork on it that brings black and white together it says like and it talks about how sports heal yeah sports and it's and how we have to put our arms around each other and embrace each other i don't think sports has if there's a racial situation among players i don't it's it's very infrequent, if ever. Yeah. I never. It never happened in my twelve years in the NBA. Yeah. So guys didn't care. They, no, we didn't. Yeah. I remember when I was my, my second year in Detroit for the Pistons. 
we drafted Dave Bing as our number one pick. Dave's a black kid from, from uh, I don't know if he's, I forget where he's from, but anyway, he played at Syracuse. Dave comes into our training camp in 1966, 67. I said, who is this kid? He's coming in there. He was awesome. I loved him. You know why I loved him? Because he was going to help us win. Right. I didn't care if he was black or white, and none of us did. We never had any problems. We yeah. ro- we roomed together. We traveled together. We drank beer together. And to this, it's still the same to this day. Yeah. We get along great. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you you roomed with Oscar for a year and a half, right? No, I roomed with Oscar off and on. I mean, they they would move us around sometimes, but I roomed with Oscar. I, I, it's been so long ago, I can't remember. But I roomed with Oscar, but I'd room with other guys too. But, yeah, uh, and I can't remember how long it was. But uh, I I know Oscar's. I know the inside of him. I know what's inside of him. Yeah, you know he was hurt by racism. Yeah, he moved up from from the south and came to indianapolis and he saw discrimination yeah and he does a pretty good job of being you know saying what he thinks but he's people understand why he's saying it you know yeah yeah he also appreciates meritocracy yeah so aside from oscar what players that you played with made the biggest impact on you as a person not just great players, but people yeah. who you looked at this person and said, wow, well, this is a person I want to emulate. One person that I just adored was Dave DeBusher. And Dave DeBusher was my coach when I went to, to Detroit as a rookie. And he was a young coach. He was only about 25 or something like that. He had a maturity level that surpassed anybody I ever met. Yeah. And he was had common sense. In fact, you You'd appreciate this, maybe. You know, he he died on the. He was with. I think he was with uh, a brokerage firm in New York City. Died of a heart attack walking down streets in in uh, New York City about ten fifteen years ago. He was a he was one of my idols. He was just such a great guy. I liked Lou Hudson a lot. Black guy who played in Minnesota, and uh, one of a great NBA player. But he just had a sweetheart about him. But there were I have a lot of friends that play, but those those two kind of stick out. And I could probably I think Dave Bing is just one of the dearest guys I've ever met. And he's done a lot to if I ever called Dave and say, Dave, I need something, not not monetarily, but I need, he's always very helpful. Yeah. He's just a great guy. You mentioned that in your book as well, your ability to call these guys and these people that you that you played with over the years. Mm-hmm. And it's almost uh, you're right back in it at that yeah, point. Yeah. You know, one guy that I really have always liked is Jerry West. Because mm-hmm. Jerry West, I don't know if you read his book, West by West. I have not, no. For anyone that's fighting depression, it would be a good book to read. He's fought depression his whole life. And he's just a wonderful guy and sincere and warm and tormented. Yeah. Really. I, he, he He's meant a lot to me in a lot of ways, but he doesn't know that. Yeah. You know. You mentioned it in the book and also today and during our conversation, depression, mental health issues. What are some of the things maybe if someone's experienced in dealing with that, what can they do to pull themselves out of it or to or maybe to find the help to get out of it? I would suggest going to a therapist, a, a well-qualified therapist, because it's hard to get out of it yourself. Yeah. Uh, for the I've talked to people about depression a lot because it's something I'm very familiar with. And so. 
when somebody says to somebody else, if somebody who's not depressed says some, something like to somebody that's depressed, oh, you'll get over it. Right, snap out of it. Yeah, yeah. snap out of you. Look, yeah. at, look how good your life is. I mean, you got a great family, you got money, you know, that, that does not work. Yeah. You have to listen to someone who's depressed. And you have to listen to them and not tell them you can't preach to them. You just got to love them and hug them and be with them. And they need professional help. They should get professional help. Yeah. And I think in this day and age, people realize that. Years ago, someone would be embarrassed to say, oh, I went and got professional help. Yeah. You know, Terry Bradshaw is somebody that I've always thought did a great job with his depression. Yeah. Uh, telling people, you know, I've got a problem. And uh, there are a lot of athletes that have come out. James Donaldson, who played seven-foot center for the Seattle Supersonics, had a great bout with depression, lost all of his money. He was homeless in Seattle. And he he, he and I have talked a little bit. He wrote a book about depression. So it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's a it's worse than having physical ailments as far as I'm concerned. You just can't. You, you think there's no hope. There's no way you're ever going to get out of it. And somehow you crawl out of it, hopefully. Yeah. You mentioned your book as well, Your Christian Faith. Has that helped you through this entire journey? Not just the mental health, but everything. Yeah. My my faith has helped me tremendously. Uh, and I didn't become a Christian until I was about 35 years old. And I'm still, I still got a lot of things I need to correct in my life. But I, the, my statement is the peace of Christ surpasses all understanding. And I live by that. I was in a real estate meeting a few years ago, and somebody was, I was with my son, and it's right here in Phoenix. And a well-known guy said, "I'm going to sue you, Tom." He didn't. They were trying to take over our co- a company that I was involved with. He said, "I've got all the attorneys in town, and I'm going to sue you." I sat there and I said, "Okay." I said, "Go ahead and sue me. I don't care." And in my mind, I was saying, "The peace of Christ surpasses all understanding." Yeah, and that helps me. Yeah, yeah. If you had to go back and when did you start playing basketball? How old were you? It's in the book, but when oh, you got your first basketball hoop there in the probably yard. six, something like that. Maybe not six because you can't really comprehend everything that's going to happen. But maybe let's say ten, twelve year old. You had to say your ten to twelve year old self, knowing the journey that you've are going to go through. What piece of advice would you give that young guy? Go for it. Yeah. Just go for it. If that's what you love, and I, Dick, and I loved it. I have people who haven't gone for it and they've regretted it yeah so it's about anything if it's music or literature or art or i say i i've always told my kids don't do something just for the money do it because you love it right and there i've had it i've had a lot of my attorney friends tell me i wish i would never have become an attorney right you know and i can understand that because that's confrontation a lot of times and so i've i told my son chris i said chris he, he really wasn't a great athlete. He was, uh, I coached him in Little League basketball. I could tell he just didn't love it that much. So if you love it, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I lived in New York City for over a decade. And uh, one of the amazing things about Subway in New York is you've got everything from homeless people to multi, multi, multi millionaires on that train. And I would look around the morning, and this, oh, this has always stuck with me. And you'd look into these people's eyes. And so many of them were miserable. And it didn't matter in terms of the money. It didn't mm-hmm. matter. They could have been dressed beautifully. They could have been, again, you know, on the streets. Mm-hmm. And that has always been something that has really struck me is I think, you know, whether we get one go around of this thing or many go arounds, we don't know. But making the most of it while we're here. 
Yeah. Hey, you know, Charles Swindoll, who's kind of a famous pastor, I remember, I forget what book he wrote, but he said, if you realize life is difficult, it's not really difficult at all. Yeah. Sometimes we complicate it too much. Yeah. And the, to me, the simple things in life are what, that's what makes me happy. Yeah. I, I you talking about seeing somebody on the street, Brent. I look at people like that, and I want to go over and talk to them, find out what their story is. And you can't always do that. They might be on drugs or hopped up or something like that. But I love hitting, hearing what the average guy does. Yeah. You know, and I love hearing what the billionaire does, too. It's just, it's a... It, life isn't difficult if you realize the learning experiences that come out of that though are pretty profound one of my favorite shit the whole book is great I, was, I, can't, I think I'm, <laughs> I'm, get, I'm getting that point across one of my favorite chapters you talk about your time when you first went to the Sixers and what I took away from that and you mentioned that you're getting a lot of you don't like it when you get questions about the kind of year the Sixers had that year but one of the things that I took away reading that chapter was just despite the things that were happening around you on that team, which were tough with the first coach, I thought was hilarious, by the way. <laughs> but but the guys, the people around you still, maybe I misread this, but made that even that time worthwhile. Brent, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I got traded there, and you can imagine, 4 and 47. And when you get traded, I mean, you're on a plane the next day. You go there, you're in the locker room the next day with players that are new to you, the coaches. New. I walked into the locker room to play the game, and, Kevin Lockery was the coach. I've always liked Kevin. Kevin <laughs> Kevin got me over in the corner and said, Tom, when you're out there, just shoot the ball. They yeah. didn't have a lot of scores. But we had we had the most great uh, well, Freddie Carter was he and Freddie Carter was the leading scorer on the team. Freddie Carter, black kid, sit lockered beside me. He'd smoke up a cigarette, light up. They'd do this back then. He'd light up a cigarette at halftime. And we'd talk. Everybody on that team got along. Yeah. We never took the floor thinking we were going to lose. And I, in fact, I called for, I called Freddie about two, three years ago just to say hi. And uh, I mean, you'd think, you know, usually you hear a losing team, they're, they're bickering, they're yelling at each other. We didn't have any of that. We had yeah. a trainer named Al Domenico who kept everything light. And Kevin Lockery was, he was a, you know, Bronx guy in New York. He kept things light, you know. Yeah, we 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 really the, the the bad part was taking the floor when you knew when you knew you'd lost lost sixteen straight games and being embarrassed because you'd lost sixteen straight games. Sure, but we players got along just fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Tom, I know you've got you've got an appointment coming up here in about twenty thirty minutes, or else we could do this for yeah, another couple yeah, hours. Yeah. This has been a real pleasure. Again, thank you so much for not only sharing this time with me today, but for sharing your book with everyone. Cause it, if, if for people that are listening to this at one, no more, definitely, definitely read the book because at least for me, to it was a real story about just, I, I got gratitude away from it. That's, that's the one word that sort of comes from mm -hmm. it. There's hardships for sure. There's, there's challenges that you went through. There are things that uh, in retrospect, <laughs> maybe you wish it happened differently, mm -hmm. but man, what, what a journey. Well, I'm appreciative of them. Thank you for having me on, Brent, because I love spreading the word about what I went through. And the other thing about this book is I have a granddaughter who has Rett syndrome, which you know, yep. and all the proceeds from this book go to the Rett Foundation. So, And anybody that wants to buy the book, it's on Barnes & Noble. Journey, Amazon. Journey, uh, I'm sorry, Amazon oh, and Barnes & Noble, yeah. both of them. And anybody that wants it can find it. 
Tom Van Arsdale is the author, Journey Man. And thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. No, I really, it means a lot to me. You carved time out of your day to, to do this with me today. So thank you so much, Tom. Gentlemen, what a, what a great interview. Uh, Brent, thank you so much for bringing Tom on. Tom, thank you. One of the things that I love that you said in here is that besides just go for it, right? That was kind of the theme of, you know, toward the end. But even when you were talking about writing the book and, and finishing the book, as your, your wife suggested and prompted you to do, um, I, I think that that is so powerful for generational just knowledge and wisdom uh, to be able to pass that down. And there's nothing that can, you know, really stop people. Even if you're a slow typer like I am, don't let that hinder you. You can open up almost any document, Word document, and uh, turn on a microphone and just talk into it. It'll type for you. So if you're listening to this and you've been thinking about writing a book, take it from Tom. It's it's so valuable, so worth it to your entire family. So um, I, I love that you gave that advice, Tom. Thank you so much for that. I agree with that 100%. I mean, it's just, and it's so easy to do just to put your thoughts down and then you can play with it. And, and, and if you're not a good writer, have somebody work with you to make it sound fluid and all that. It's a, and, and I would just say to people, it's almost like meditation. You sit down and you think, and you will think of things that you never thought you would recall. And it's very cathartic for you as well as whomever is going to read it. Again, thank you so much, Tom. And of course, Brent, thank you so much for bringing Tom on the show. And our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Smart Money Simplified podcast with Brent Mikosh. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Brent comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at MP Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Money Simplified Podcast. Have any questions about topics covered during the show? Visit www.smartmoneysimplified.com or give us a call at 602-255-0555. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your individual situation. Securities are offered through Raymond James Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors Incorporated, MP Advisors, LLC, is not a broker slash dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services.